Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is about 10 seconds away from 4 o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett and I have a voice back today, so that's good. Today I'll be speaking with Tim Wright from ICANN about discussions of a possible nuclear weapons ban which have been taking place in Geneva. Giselle Hanna from Australia Asia Worker Links talking about her visit to Indonesia. The life of Father Daniel Berrigan, activist and Catholic priest in the United States who was actually on the FBI's most wanted list for a while. Ramsey Baroud, Palestinian author and journalist who was speaking via a video in Melbourne recently, and part two of my interview with veteran Philippines activist Sonny Malinkio, looking at the Philippines post-Marcos to the present time. But let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when anti-racism has finally been put in its long overdue place. At long last, anti-racism, belief that we're all equal, that we all have a right to be ourselves, has been declared the most heinous of crimes. An argument for bringing back capital punishment, just when we thought capital punishment is what capital does to the 90% of people who haven't got too much of it. Bringing back capital punishment and bringing out almost the entire Victorian... Uh, sorry, police force, to track down these evil criminals who say we shouldn't hate people because of their colour, race, religion. And we must love them if they're filthy rich or put on a uniform to protect the filthy rich, to protect those who believe we must hate people because of their colour, race or religion, to protect the true blue Aussie flag which represents from its genesis the very basis of invasion and racism, the very symbol of qualities that must be admired. Choosing to hold a rally declaring anti-racism, countering the swastikas and the true blue Aussie flag, is asking for trouble, asking for violence. Not as some long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker in iron lots might unpatriotically, unpolitically correct suggest, allowing the swastikas and true blue Aussie flags to win. We like, you know like, our week that was, police spokesperson Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig told us in an exclusive interview, believe like these swastika neo-thingies, neo-thingies have a right, you know like, to be themselves and the anti-racist, you know like, criminals have no right to like, you know, prevent them expressing like themselves, like, you know. Thank you, Senior Sergeant. Beautifully put. But while we bring back the gallows for those who oppose racism and intolerance, the depressing reality is there's still almost five weeks of this election fever that has us so intrigued to go. Last week we said almost six weeks. Doesn't time go slowly when you're not having fun? So to help us decide which square the shaking hand will land on, our very special week that was election coverage, capturing all the excitement that has true blue Aussie in a fever.
Relieved only by moments like when the Minister for Financing the Financiers, Matthias Rotten-Tuda, discovered Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten ambition was his lifelong hero. His newfound lifelong hero, if that not be a contradiction, which it probably is. The best thing the true blue Aussie economy has ever seen. The saviour this country needs and the relief bit for us that priceless moment when silly Matthias suddenly realised what he'd said and presumably was instantly contemplating the consequences. Oh, for a good Cuban cigar and a long-aged malt scotch when you need them, eh, Matthias? And a week when another giant mind deserving of every cent of the hundreds of thousands in salary and perks of our money he enjoys, Barnacle Joystick, informed us Indonesia in other people's business swapped human cattle for non-cattle. Cattle not slaughtered in Indonesia in swapped for human cattle slaughtered by True Blue Aussie's commitment to the UN of the US of the UN of the world's conventions on refugees, on asylum seekers on the desperates fleeing wars and invasions, most of which involved Troublewazi train killers, the coalition of the killing, Barnacle sending big supremo Malcolm Tunnock-Bull and the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers, careering into salvage mode, telling us what Barnacle really meant while Barnacle stood next to Malcolm, nodding intelligently that, yes, that's what he really meant, while they assured his mouth got nowhere near a microphone. But I'd better clarify that UN of Refugee Convention bit, because these people escaping our train killers, fleeing the coalition of the killing and the consequences of the coalition of the killing, are not asylum seekers. They are, as we well know, illiterate, innumerate, job-stealing, dole-bludging, no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people who deserve to rot in detention. Get into the queue, we say, once you've found it, worked out where the queue is, and if you ever find it, do let us know. We've also seen white sages, experts on the terra nullius people in Canberra and sundry state governments celebrate Sorry Day, Reconciliation Week, by outlining their latest policies for the terra nullius people. Because while experts have to determine what's good for terra nullius, because white experts have to determine what's good for terra nullius people, because the terra nullius people are terra nullius and don't exist and had no right to come to this white country in the first place to not exist or not come because they're not here and anyway political phrenology represents compassion and understanding the you can't trust the socialist award of the week I would have called it the Socialist Bastardry Award, but we're too nice to use that language on the week that was, to poor big economic guru scuttle them more less son and Malcolm after they unveiled the huge, huge, huge black hole the Socialist promises would ex excavate in the sacred earth of the budget. Only to have to admit, after a few very simple basic questions from the assembled media, who after all are not exactly mortal enemies of the caring business class party, not the most laser-like cross-examiners, admit, OK, maybe it wasn't quite as huge as we thought, or thought you'd believe, or more importantly, thought the true Blue Aussie people would believe.
Indeed, at best, only about half as deep, if that. But did they stammer red-faced and apologise for getting it so spectacularly wrong? Well, we all know the answer. As Scuttle them explained, the guilt for them getting it so spectacularly wrong lay fairly and squarely with the Socialist Party itself. No, no, I've got no idea, but Scuttle them said so, so it must be true. Some subliminal sleight of hand legend a man poor Scuttle them and Malcolm fell for. Don't know whether to send the You Can't Trust the Socialists Award to Scuttle them or Little Billy or, or give them one each. The socialist big black hole, spendometer, on the broad is you mouthing slogans non-stop, sure as hell beats, having to come up with real policies every time. The independent who has his own party and candidates, must be the independent party, Nick Xenophony, so-called because he's obviously a phony independent, said the trouble with politics was, it's such, such a fight between the left and the right, meaning he's obviously light years ahead of us, because he's found the left. Can't wait for him to tell us where it is. Obviously, the weight of public office hasn't taken its toll on Nick, because somehow, not sure how, but notice his hair is still blacker than black. Not a sign of grey. Party heavies turning white, we suspect, out at McEwen, where the caring business class candidate Chris German, the works, thought he was the smartest thing since Peter Duffer by crashing a meet-the-people visit by Little Billy, taking advantage of the media, great tele-coverage and all that, promoting just how smart he is. Until, how dare they, the media asked him a few tricky questions about caring business class health policy like, what is your health policy? At this point, poor Chris fled his big media opportunity and when they cornered him down the road, he fingered, what's wrong with this country? This is where satire just can't compete. Direct quote, I suggest that this kind of interrogative journalism is exactly what's been wrong with true blue Aussie politics over the last few years. And with that, he picked up his gear and took off again. So while we complain the media doesn't put politicians under anywhere near enough pressure, ask enough probing questions, German the works says they have no right to ask any. Which is understandable when they go beyond the norm by asking what his policy is. For the record, Chris said he knew, but he wasn't going to tell them. Speaking of Peter Duffer, we've got a job for him. The latest pisser awful acronym, Program for International Student Assessment Results, shows True Blue Aussie 15-year-olds slipping further behind in literacy and numeracy skills. Just the job for Super Pete. Eradicate the problem by sending all 15-year-olds to Nauru and Manus Island with all the other illiterate, innumerate, job-stealing doll bludgers. That was the week that was special in-depth election report. Hope it helped us decide. One thing we couldn't report on on such matters, given the election was called prematurely a double disillusion because getting a crush the building union's jackboots con mission was so urgent that obviously it's been front and centre of all caring business class party policies and electioneering. 
other than that this oh-so-urgent raison d'etre for calling the election has sunk without trace, has not been mentioned. What happened to the urgency, Malcolm? Because we know evil unions haven't stopped being evil unions, become less evil, haven't followed the long-term responsible example of the Shopping the Workers Union, for instance, who understand how lazy, avaricious workers crucify poor, caring employers. Finally, back where we started, public transport, trains and trams were also thrown into disarray Saturday due, the announcement said, to police operations. Mm. Obviously, public transport and anti-racism are both threats to public order. Why all trained passengers, no matter where they were going, had to be searched and delayed for ages. Anti-racism and public transport, both serious, heinous crimes. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Ealy. Two weeks today, this is we here. Representing... The 3CR annual Radiothon is almost here and we're celebrating 40 years of Radical Radio. Between June 6th and 19th, we're asking you to help us stay on air for another 40 years. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, just call 03 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come. Next, a discussion about two events. The first earlier this month at the UN in Geneva, Switzerland, and the second in Japan last Friday. On the phone is Tim Wright, the Asia-Pacific Director of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Tim attended the second session of groundbreaking diplomatic talks on nuclear disarmament in Geneva and the third and final session of the talks will take place in August. The likely result will be the adoption of a resolution this October in the UN General Assembly recommending the start of negotiations on a treaty banning nuclear weapons. But Tim, before we talk about what happened in the second session, what was achieved in the first one? These talks are at the United Nations in Geneva and they're aimed at establishing new legal measures against nuclear weapons. They began in in February and there are about 100 countries which have participated so far and countries really started to talk in some detail about what kind of elements should be part of these new legal measures against nuclear weapons and then we saw a continuation of that at the May session which I've just returned from. And this is really the first time that the governments have looked in detail at the kinds of prohibitions that they would like to see in place. For example, clear prohibitions on the modernisation of nuclear forces, prohibitions on the financing of nuclear weapon programs. This is really taking things to the next level. Did you get many more countries participating in the second session? No, not significantly more. But I think that the debate definitely moved to the next level. We had a specific proposal put on the table by a number of the leading governments to actually convene a negotiating conference in 2017. At the moment, we're kind of in the pre-negotiation phase where it's just a matter of debating the various proposals. But this specific proposal is to actually start formal treaty negotiations. 
What do you mean by leading government? Indonesia, Malaysia, Mexico, Brazil, a few others that have really taken this issue on and they're all nuclear weapon free countries that are fed up with the lack of progress that's been made by the nuclear armed countries over the particularly the last two decades since the end of the Cold War. They're wanting to seize control of the agenda and start a negotiating process to declare nuclear weapons illegal. Well, tell me what it was like at the end and and what you've taken forward or what you will take forward to the next session. Yeah, so the next session will be in August and at the end of the May session, it was clear that there was a very big divide in the room. Uh, By far, the majority of countries believe that it's time to declare nuclear weapons illegal. These are the only weapons of mass destruction that aren't yet prohibited. So it's a matter of uh, ending that or addressing that legal anomaly but there's this small group of countries which are are called weasel governments australia is one of them but most of them are are european countries that are members of nato that are really committed to maintaining a nuclear weapon-based security policy so they claim protection from their allies nuclear weapons the u.s uh, nuclear arsenal and they want to do so indefinitely into the future. So they're very resistant to this idea of prohibiting nuclear weapons. And at the end of the May session, it was difficult to see how this very strong position that they've taken can be reconciled with the position taken by the overwhelming majority of the participating governments. So it'll be interesting to see at the August session how the chair manages to deal with this divergence of views in the room. His role, he's the ambassador of Thailand and as chair of the the group, he needs to come up with a report that reflects the general agreement of the participating governments uh, and then submit that report to the UN General Assembly in September. The purpose is to come up with new legal measures against nuclear weapons, new norms. I mean, there's always been resistance to disarmament from a number of countries, even though they're parties to the Non-Proliferation Treaty and they're required to pursue negotiations for nuclear disarmament, there are countries which are very eager to prevent meaningful progress towards that end. This process is open to all countries. We very much encourage all governments to participate, whether they're supportive of what we're trying to achieve or not. We believe it's better to have more voices in the room and as many countries engaged in this process as possible. It's unfortunate that these countries are still so committed to nuclear weapon-based security policies when clearly these weapons have catastrophic humanitarian consequences and should never be used again. Did Australia's position change from the first session to the second? That was interesting because the election was called during the, the May session and so for the second week of the May session, Australia had a caretaker government and usually the caretaker government would just continue with whatever the the government policy is on the issue. But if there's no bipartisan agreement on the issue, then the government can't speak uh, on that particular issue. The government maintained a very low profile during the second week because the Labor Party has a different policy on this from the Liberal Party. Last year, the Labor Party revised its national platform uh, and declared that it firmly supports the negotiation of a treaty 
prohibiting nuclear weapons. That's the reason for the uh, the near silence of the Australian government during the second session. Does lobbying take place between the sessions? There are a lot of papers that are submitted during the sessions. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure put on certain governments to take particular positions. We also did a lot of work between the February and May sessions to build parliamentary support, so to make sure that parliamentarians are aware of what's happening at the UN uh, in Norway and the Netherlands. Our campaigners managed to get full kind of parliamentary debates happening on this issue. Uh, And in both cases, the parliaments adopted motions calling on their governments to support negotiations on, on a nuclear weapon ban. Both the Netherlands and Norway are members of NATO, so there's a lot of pressure on them from the US and other members of NATO to oppose this initiative. Uh, And so the government in both countries is being told one thing by the the parliament and told another thing by NATO. And and so they're in this kind of in-between position. Uh, And at the moment, I think... uh, NATO is is really determining the position for those countries, but with time, uh, I think we can get them to shift their position based on the strong public and and parliamentary support, and I hope that that's the case in Australia as well. Well, turning to Obama in Japan, he was quoted as saying he was calling for a world without nuclear weapons, and I'll just read a couple of quotes from those who don't quite believe what he's saying. In 2014, he signed a a nuclear deal with the UK to continue to maintain viable nuclear forces into the foreseeable future. There's a new US missile defence system in Eastern Europe which will encourage Russia to upgrade and expand its own arsenal, including its nuclear weapons, and it's spending more than $1 trillion upgrading and expanding the US nuclear arsenal. Are we looking at a big dose of hypocrisy there from what he said in Japan? Yeah, early on in in his presidency, he spoke in Prague uh, and he spoke of America's commitment to the peace and security of the world without nuclear weapons and the moral responsibility that the US has to lead on this issue. And back then, I think it was possible to hear that speech and have hope that he would live up to that. But seven years later, listening to similar comments being made in Hiroshima, it's, it's a very different story where we know that not only has he failed to make significant cuts in the US nuclear arsenal, he has, as he said, invested heavily in modernization of uh, all three components of the US arsenal. So the the submarines, the uh, land-based missiles and the bomber aircraft. And this is with the intention of maintaining uh, nuclear weapons for many decades to come. Another really alarming development is his administration's pursuit of uh, smaller nuclear weapons with lower yields, still incredibly destructive weapons, uh, almost as large as the Hiroshima bomb. And the purpose of developing these smaller weapons is to lower the threshold for use. That has been something which uh, he's received a lot of criticism for. So to go to Hiroshima, I think I've got mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, it's an important acknowledgement 
of the human suffering that was in, inflicted uh, on the people of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but at the same time it just reeks of hypocrisy given what his administration uh, has done and is, is doing in terms of modernising and building up the arsenal. And it reinforces the battle you've got ahead of you. Yeah, it's a huge, huge challenge and I don't think that we're going to see US leadership on this issue any time in the near future and that's why our whole approach is based on mobilising nuclear-free countries to really stigmatise and reject these weapons and we believe that through a prohibition treaty we can help to cut off the financing of these weapons and we can help establish a really strong global norm against them and certainly if we have countries like Australia shifting their position uh, and moving from a country which has for the past uh, few decades really defended nuclear weapons to really strongly criticising them, I think that would make a huge difference. It would make a difference if we could get the countries in Europe that currently host US nuclear weapons on their soil to end that practice. All of these developments could really create the conditions where it becomes impossible for the nuclear-armed countries to continue with their modernisation programs, which are in violation of the non-proliferation treaty. You spoke before about lobbying parliamentarians and informing them of the, the issues that they might not know about. What other work is I can do to raise public awareness in Australia? Well, recently we did a big nationwide tour, or a four-city tour, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, uh, with nuclear test survivors from South Australia and the Marshall Islands. There were tests conducted in Australia in the 50s and 60s that have had a, a terrible impact on health and the environment. And similarly in the Marshall Islands, those were the US tests and they were British tests here. And so we wanted to really raise awareness about that and, and also draw attention to this diplomatic process that's underway to try to put in place a global prohibition on nuclear weapons so that the public can be involved in this process uh, and really put pressure on their parliamentarians to be supportive of it. Unless the public is aware of what's going on, then it's all too easy for politicians just take instructions from the United States as to what their position will be at these negotiations. You're the Asia-Pacific Director of ICANN. What other areas of the world are covered such as your, with a job such as yours? Yeah, so we've got campaigners all around the world. We're, we're basically a coalition of non-government organisations uh, in around 100 countries. So when we participate in talks at the United Nations, we have campaign teams for each of the regions and we make sure that we're speaking to every single government in the room, that they're aware of what our position is, what our expectations are, uh, and for the vast majority of governments, they're very receptive to what we have to say. They're grateful for the uh, information that we're able to provide them. They're often working on many different issues, and so they rely on civil society organisations to brief them. And I think for, for a lot of the countries that are resistant to this, the work that we're doing in Parliament and raising public awareness is really, really crucial to, to making this 
uh, effort successful. Uh, and we saw with the processes in the in the 1990s to ban landmines and about a decade ago, the process to ban cluster munitions, the role of civil society is really crucial in driving the process forward. And getting rid of nuclear weapons is the big one. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and people, of course, have been fighting against nuclear weapons since 1945, since the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so we're uh, continuing the work of, of past decades. And I think the fact that nuclear weapons have been limited to nine countries and the fact that they haven't been used since Nagasaki has a lot to do with the strength of civil society and the global public rejection of these worst weapons of mass destruction. Well, it sounds as though you're going to have a, a busy couple of months, Tim. Yeah, I think we're at a really exciting moment in in the campaign on the cusp of, of starting this negotiating process and we know that it's not going to lead to the elimination of nuclear weapons overnight but uh, I think that this process really has the capacity to fundamentally alter the way that nuclear weapons are perceived. We need to move beyond this notion that the problem is North Korea or Russia or whoever we might perceive as the enemy the problem is the weapons themselves and uh, it's unacceptable for any country, including Australia, as, as an ally of the United States, to argue that these weapons are necessary for security. Uh, if our own government believes that they're necessary for security, what hope do we have of convincing North Korea to move to a nuclear weapon-free security policy? Uh, we need to establish the same standard for all countries. That's precisely what we're trying to achieve through this process. Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. The 3CR annual Radiothon is almost here and we're celebrating 40 years of radical radio. Between June 6th and 19th, we're asking you to help us stay on air for another 40 years. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, just call 03 9419 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come. And before that important message about the Radiothon, which... For this program, we'll be in a fortnight's time. We heard from Tim Wright, who's the Asia-Pacific Director of ICANN, working against nuclear weapons. Jesuit father Daniel Berrigan died on the 30th of April, just days before his 95th birthday. He was a priest, a poet, a prisoner and an anti-war crusader known as one of the most controversial figures in the 20th century U.S. church and held the distinction of being on the FBI's most wanted list, the first Catholic priest to have this distinction. Peace activist Kathy Kelly was a long-time friend and fellow activist and I spoke to her several weeks after his passing. Kathy, he was a child of the Great Depression. That would have had a big influence on him. Yes, I think that certainly the boys, Daniel and his brothers, Jerry and Philip, 
felt very afraid of their father, and I imagine the father was pressured and stressed by trying to raise a family during the Depression. They also had felt huge loyalty toward their mother. I should imagine that, you know, living during a time when there wasn't a great deal of plenty within the home also helped to build the identification of those brothers with people that are struggling just to get by, both in other countries and within the United States. When did he begin his activism? A civil rights person, as a social worker, as a person who cared about other people? Well, it's interesting. I had just finished reading a volume of correspondence between Dan Berrigan and his brother, his younger brother, Philip Berrigan, which has just been printed by Orbis Press, and it's a collection of the letters between the two brothers. And in the beginning, the letters are very devout. They um, encourage each other to be strong in the spirit and uh, to maintain their faith and develop themselves as fine priests. And it wasn't until Phil, who had become a Josephite priest, began to see the terrible injustices inflicted on people in the deep south of the United States. Phil had gone off to World War II, and he came back as a veteran, and then he joined a seminary and became a priest. And it was Phil who then um, wrote to Dan and, and helped Dan understand that they really would have to connect their faith and their sense of ministry with ways of ministering to people that were so badly abused because of the segregation and the threats to continually keep African Americans subjugated in the United States. So I think it was probably when Dan was a full-fledged Jesuit, he'd been ordained as a priest, and he was working as a teacher, that he began to recognize that his brother was kind of pulling him in a direction that would require a great deal of sacrifice on both their parts. So at the same time as people were becoming all across the United States more aware of the heft of the civil rights movement, you also had people like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King speaking out against the Vietnam War. And so both brothers felt that they should take strong and vigorous actions to protest the war. And I'd say they were probably in their 30s or so when they started to devise the Catonsville Nine Action, burning of draft card action. Just before that, the civil rights movement, the marches, were they both part of that? Yes, they were. They had both participated in marches and uh, vigils and demonstrations. I think Philip was more involved in a kind of hands-on way because he was he was serving parishes in the south of the United States. But Daniel did go down? Yes, yes, Dan did participate in marches. And um, he was also constantly writing poetry and becoming noted as a, as a very accomplished poet. And so I think there were ways in which he could maybe further the outreach through his own writing and through the audience for, for his poetry. Anyway, the two of them became quite a good team, and they, they were drawing more and more people toward them who wanted to participate in the kinds of actions they were, they were recommending. Who were those listening to his poems? How did he get those messages out? Uh-huh. Well, I think that you could speak of the Catholic left at that time. There were people in networks across the country involved with the Catholic worker, people who were part of an organization called Pax Christi, people who were just beginning to see possibilities of changing the way that the Catholic liturgy was celebrated. 
And then, of course, university people across the country who I think began to identify with the very powerful and interesting story of what was happening to these two brothers. You know, Dan had been convicted of his participation in napalming the draft card files, but when it was time for him to turn himself in and begin serving a prison sentence, he didn't show up. He kind of went, as you might say, on the lam. And so there was a great deal of interest in where's Dan Berrigan now. And students would bring him in to speak at their university and then have a big puppet on hand and put the puppet over his head and spirit him out of the university uh, to take him to the next spot. And so for several months, he was eluding FBI agents. And there's a very famous picture of him on Block Island and two men who were actually FBI agents were posing as bird watchers and they closed in on Dan Berrigan and, and they arrested him but there's a picture in which Dan is flashing the peace sign and a big smile and it, it looks like he's arrested the two on either side of him almost. So there was a lot of interest. I don't, I don't think that either brother cultivated celebrity but they certainly generated a lot of notoriety because of the, the boldness of their actions because of prison sentences they received. Can you talk a bit more about the, the draft cards? There were many hundreds, weren't there? Well, the way in which um, the United States was organizing the induction of young men into the military and um, almost certain involvement in United States wars, is particularly thinking about Vietnam, was to have what they called uh, selective service. And if your draft board determined that you were 1A, then that meant that you, you, uh, you had no exemptions. You would just have to go unless you could somehow prove that uh, physically you wouldn't be able to handle being in the military or, you know, some people could get a deferment because of being students. But many, many people were being inducted into the Army and sent over to fight in Vietnam. And one way to protest that would be to destroy those files. And so... Some young men were doing it themselves. They would just, you know, pull out their draft card and, you know, a cigarette lighter and, and publicly burn it. Uh, others were, was of course, trying to leave the United States, get up to Canada and beat the draft that way. But um, the Bergen brothers both didn't have to worry about anything like a draft throughout their young lives because they were priests. And yet they they recognized that one way to challenge the war would be to symbolically destroy a large number of, of draft cards. So um, the first effort involved uh, burning the draft cards, but the second time at the Catonsville raid that they did, they um, made homemade napalm and, and used that as, as, I think, a very effective symbol because by then people were far more aware that napalm was being um, sprayed and setting ablaze huge forests in Vietnam, but also falling on the backs of children. So Dan made this very, very courageous and bold statement. It begins by saying, excuse us for this disruption of the good order of the day, that we can no longer cooperate, more or less, with the burning of the children. And then he states, and this was read to great effect during the funeral mass, uh, Liz McAllister, who was the widow of, of Phil Berrigan, he had died of cancer, and, and she was very, very close to Dan. She herself had been a religious sister, and the two, Phil and Liz, fell in love with each other, and they were both in jail, and 
their correspondence had also generated quite a lot of attention. Anyway, she read Dan's statement that had been read as they burnt with napalm the draft board files, and the whole church, the church was filled. I mean, I, I had thought I was coming early, and I just was able to slip into a spot in the back end of the church. It was completely packed, and everybody was on their feet in a roar with applause, hearing those lines that had so inspired most of the people in the church, I suppose, during their younger years. I found it a, an intense moment myself because with all the fervor and desire within that church collectively to respond to Dan's challenge to put an end to wars and to, to do that, be peacemakers with our whole lives, not with a half a life, and to avoid what he termed as the wasting disease of normalcy. And I was in a church with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people who have given it their best and that yet we still have not managed to make a significant dent in what the Pentagon summons up every year to develop and sell and store and use more and more weapons. And he got two years jail for this? Yes. Now, for Dan, those years, he, he sacrificed a great deal. Both brothers did, but in terms of Dan's more fragile health, the time that he spent in prison was almost life-threatening. A very badly performed dental operation had laid him low, and he uh, he needed much better care than he was getting. And so at that point, his brother Phil was in another prison, and he had organized a hunger fast on behalf of his brother. And so the two brothers were kind of vitally connected through that time and through uh, a time of great sacrifice, um, both in, in the fact that they were apart from each other, and they couldn't talk to each other, they couldn't visit with each other, and also, you know, they weren't sure if they were both going to make it through that imprisonment. In all in all, he spent more than that in jail. He spent nearly seven years in oh, jail? Yes, yeah, yeah. he was in and out of jails quite often, and I remember myself as a young teenager, uh, if I got on the Archer Avenue bus early to go to my part-time job, then I'd have 15 minutes when I could duck into St. Benet's bookstore and learn more about Dan Berrigan by reading these various books and paraphernalia that were there. And it, it meant a great deal to a whole generation of young people to keep hearing from Dan Berrigan his encouragement to direct your life, organize your life so that you can really follow your deepest beliefs and, and if you don't believe in war then don't cooperate with it. That message came out loud and clear through Dan and his life in New Fitness. Tell me about the time he went to North Vietnam with Howard Zinn. They knew that they would be able to work with the North Vietnamese government to secure the release of several prisoners and so this was something that they felt they, sh they should do, and then they also asked the prisoners when they were released uh, never to work for the military again. And I suppose, in a way, it's, a, it's a, when the government decides that they'll work with ordinary civilians to accomplish a kind of a diplomacy and interaction. It's a way of expressing something like um, disregard or disrespect for the ruling authorities. And, you know, we want, when they say we're not going to work with your State Department and we're not going to work with your high-level diplomats we're going, or, or your politicians, we're going to work with the people that are hell-bent in resisting you. That's, that's a very powerful statement to make. 
and I think that wasn't lost on the North Vietnamese government. So, of course, there must have been quite a good deal of anger toward Howardson and Daniel Berrigan. Again, this is a big sacrifice that they um, both were making, and for Dan, it always would affect what kinds of assignments, because he was faithful to the Jesuit order, and, you know, if he displeased them, then they could, that could have repercussions in where they would send him next, or what kind of a expectation they'd have about what work he should be doing. And then, of course, there, there were people who would deride and try to create great shame because of him having taken that action, and some of those people would print things that were derogatory in, in various media. But there were also many, many people who would support him, people like Dorothy Day or Thomas Merton, certain figures in other church establishments. I think Akbar Ahmed, um, as, an, as a Muslim thinker and writer, was very highly in support of Dan Bergen and Howard Zinn and uh, Mubashir Hassan in, in Pakistan. So they, they were becoming people who, whose actions were noted, I think, worldwide. Karen Rowley and a, a couple of other Australians have disabled or partly disabled war machines here in Australia and also in Ireland. I believe that Dan might have been the first one to do that. He hammered on a, a nuclear weapon component. Do you know that story? Right. Uh, well, the, the Berenin brothers help people take very seriously the second chapter of the book of Isaiah in which it's written, When shall come the day when they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks? Nations shall not lift the sword against nation, neither shall they continue to learn the ways of war any longer. And in a very disciplined and structured way, Dan and Phil Berrigan and a friend Elmer Moss and sister Anne Montgomery came together and would invite people into a year or more of of reflection and do so very, very quietly, if, if you became part of a group planning a plowshares action, you weren't to tell about it even to your closest relatives, even to your spouse if you were married. And they would reflect on the scriptures, they would reflect on the motivation for taking an action, but the action was, uh, it was a bit prescriptive, the action would have to include pouring vials of your own blood on the weapon to symbolize that these weapons cause bloodshed and then also taking some kind of an implement and in some way hammering. It was always symbolic, but doing some kind of symbolic damage to the weapon. And so many, many post actions have happened all around the world. I think um, in Ireland, uh, the pit stop plowshares was the action I was maybe most familiar with because I testified at their trial, which lasted three years, uh, and that was in um, a protest just before the shock and awe bombing began. And a, a jury, an Irish jury, acquitted them on all five counts when the barristers were able to communicate that these five had uh, acted in accord with their faith and that the question shouldn't be, did they have a lawful excuse to do what they did? The question should be, what's our excuse, all of us in the court, not to do more? And in Australia, I've been so impressed by my friend Simon Moyle and uh, activists that have joined with him in going to Swan Island doing some protests that have, I think, drawn national attention and, and, and help expose the choices that the Australian government has made to build up weapon systems, I'm sure at the expense of meeting the needs of people that 
could be met within Australia and, and certainly trying to alleviate conditions of hunger and disease in other parts of the world. Can you talk about his activism during the, the long wars, which continue to this day, of the Americans in the Middle East? A number of us were coming to New York every summer to do a long fast, and we would fast most years for 30 days, but then in 2001 we actually fasted for 40 days, and every Friday we would bring a plate of lentils to the steps of the U.S. mission to the U.N. and ask the authorities to come down and break fast with us and hear from us what we'd seen and heard in Iraq. And if they wouldn't come down, then we would stay on those steps until the police came and arrested us. And Dan Berrigan was so kindly in his support for those actions. He always made sure that the Jesuit community at 220 West 98th Street would be open and available for us if we needed a place to meet or if somebody needed a place to stay overnight unexpectedly. And then he would come and join us for those actions. And as a consequence, he'd be taken into what's called the tombs. It's like the graveyards, the, the tombs. And that's the colloquial name for the New York City lockup. And it's just a miserable place. It's you know, late at night to be down there. With, it's, it's a warehousing process. Hundreds of prisoners that have been picked up off the streets of New York. And, and Dan would, you know, he was sometimes experiencing back pains himself or... You know, he was getting more frail and fragile, but he would always join for those actions and actions at a ship called the Intrepid, and we, we many times would go to this ship, a warship, to use that as a symbolic place to protest. And so Dan was in, in the lockups and going into the courtrooms and advising people and really um, keeping a community feeling very alive and, and very good about what they were doing. I watched him do that year after year. He was part of a community called the Kairos community, and they met once a month, and, and Dan would always be at those meetings if he was in town. It, it was a way to kind of keep a core group committed to weekly demonstrations at Union Square in New York City and also continual reflection. And that's a, another huge contribution that Dan Berrigan made to the peace movement worldwide and certainly in the United States. He helped promote these reflections through his own writing, and he never tired of commenting on the scriptures and of creating books that would help people use the scriptures in a way, I think, that would enliven their own peace activism, critique of the United States system. What was his involvement with AIDS patients? Well, at one point, he decided to go to St. Rose of Hawthorne home for people dying of cancer, many of them dying of AIDS, and, and just become an orderly. And he, you know, he rolled up his sleeves and worked hard uh, ministering to people. My, our co-coordinator here, Brian Terrell, also worked at, uh, at that place and worked alongside Dan, and Dan didn't ask for any special exceptions. He just worked right alongside with the others in the hospital trying to bring relief and alleviate some of the suffering of people who probably wouldn't leave the hospital alive. I'll just read two quotes from people who knew him. He was one of the most controversial figures in the 20th century US church and his editor called him the person who changed the history of the Catholic Church not just in the United States but the world. Mm. It's pretty strong words. 
I certainly agree to both of those, that he he was an agent for change by virtue of his actions and his words. He became a figure that people could either identify with or reject, and, and it's certainly true that he was controversial, but he was, it, it, he was recognizable. You, you kind of knew where he stood and, and knew what to expect him to say with regard to war, and it was always a scathing uncompromising rejection of war and of militarism. Could I ask you about his opinions on Israel? I think he spoke out in a way that certainly angered the Israeli government. And, you know, I honestly myself didn't, if I were going to talk about people who were among the strongest critics of the Israeli government, I probably wouldn't have thought about Dan Bergen, actually. But at a time when people in Palestine certainly needed voices to speak up on their behalf and, and kind of unmask the, uh, the wrongfulness, the, the apartheid really of the Israeli occupation and the displacement of Palestinians from their lands, uh, Dan did speak up. You know, I'm thinking back to letters that I read in this correspondence I had mentioned, and um, Phil certainly supported him in doing that. And um, it may be that there, that there were people in his close personal circles who in New York City would have found that going too far, that he would condemn the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. And he certainly stayed with that perspective. I know that many people who had gone over to Iraq, and he was so supportive of us in terms of breaking the economic sanctions, would also travel to Gaza and to the West Bank and come back and talk with him and feel that they kind of had his blessing before they headed out. I'm thinking particularly of a couple of the co-coordinators of Voices for Creative Nonviolence over the years who were always welcomed by Dan and his community to, to go and meet with them and, and tell them what they had just done, whether they were traveling to Palestine or traveling to Iraq. And I, and I know that they felt um, appreciative of Dan's encouragement. Finally, Kathy, you would say that he was a, a big influence on your life. Well, he was. I was sort of enamored as a as a young teenager. I remember I would um, take burlap and felt and uh, and a quote from Dan Berrigan and 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 carefully trace out all the letters to all the words of the quote and paste those onto a burlap banner and feel that somehow that was the best gift that I could give to somebody. Um, certainly, he was a wordsmith. He had a tremendous way with words. He. The quote I so remember, it helped me through times of uncertainty a great deal. And I suppose in a way it was just kind of generic, but he once had written, he, meaning Jesus, he rebuked the wind and there came a great calm. A calm always follows, or almost always. A question and then an answer. A storm and then a miracle. Sometimes, but not always. And I think that in a, in a time when... People feel deep uncertainty and need some confirmation that that's okay not to have all the answers, not not to be completely 100% sure of yourself. Someone like Dan Berrigan could be a very, very good counselor even to people whom he, he didn't know at all. But for me then, to get to know him and to be welcome to stay with the community whenever I went to New York, which was often during the, the years when we were organizing delegations to break the economic sanctions and to 
to sense that um, encouragement that was just like a fountain for all of the young people that were involved in that effort was a, a very great blessing. Um, I've been most identified with and involved with the New York Catholic Worker, with Mary House and St. Joe's House. And if you would ever go there on, say, May Day or any of the days when they would have a, a celebration, Dan would be there, and as people walked in, and I know he didn't know all of them by name, he would raise up his hands and have kind of a, almost a beatific smile on his face and welcome each person that came up to give them a greeting. And, you know, he was becoming much more frail, and so you could see that the mantle, if you will, was being passed on to the next generation of Berrigans, and I've been fortunate to be close to two of Phil's children, Frida Berrigan and Jerry Berrigan. They have certainly been influenced by their Uncle Dan and, and have shared their stories about him with people as they did during the wake and the funeral in this past week. And uh, it's wonderful to see now that, that, that they're actually now raising small children who I think will also keep this fascination with and appreciation for Dan Berrigan going. Thanks for that tribute, Kathy. Well, it's a privilege. Um, so much has been written uh, in the past week. Uh, there, there are many, many good articles that have been appearing on the Internet, but one um, good insight into the Berrigan Brothers is this new book called The Berrigan Letters, Personal Correspondence Between Daniel and Philip Berrigan by Daniel Kosaki and Aaron Mar- Eric Martin. Uh, so it's put out by Orbis Press and just came out. Thank you. All right, thank you. And uh, all good wishes to you, Jen. And that's peace activist Kathy Kelly speaking mm-hmm. about Daniel Berrigan, a Catholic priest, but he was much more than that. He was a, a worldwide known poet. He was an anti-war activist, human rights activist, and he went to prison many times for his work. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Two weeks ago, Giselle Hanna from Australia Asia Worker Links spoke about her visit to meet with unionists in Malaysia. 
Today, the Indonesian leg of her tour. I asked Giselle, are the workers in Indonesia facing similar problems and repression as is the case in Malaysia? Indonesia's got a very different history. I think 1965, and for listeners who who don't recall what that is, that was the concerted and organised massacre of hundreds of thousands of communists with the intention of smashing the communist movement in Indonesia. That still plays a significant role. The government is far more corrupt in Indonesia than Malaysia and society, you know, I think that that filters down. Even something as simple as catching a taxi is not a transparent transaction. There is much less space in Indonesia for activists and it is palpable. I think the other thing is that labour laws are different. So in Indonesia, arguably, the labour laws are very liberal, but it has a different impact. So for instance, unions are legal. You just need 10 people to form a union. So you go to a workplace that's got 400, 500 people. You just need 10 to get yourself registered. There's no rule about having more than one union in a workplace. So actually what happens is five or six unions register in a single workplace. It's very fragmenting. So so that law that looks like, oh, great, unions are legal here, is actually has the effect of fragmenting the movement rather than unifying it. Is Indonesia a much more industrialised country than Malaysia? It's hard to answer objectively to that, so I can tell you from what I've seen. I mean, there are export processing zones in Malaysia. I wasn't even able to get close to them. In Indonesia, I drove through two of them. So one of them in Bekasi, which is a very industrialised area of Indonesia, that export processing zone has 5,000 factories. Not 5,000 workers, I mean 5,000 factories. It's pretty much a suburb of factories. It's how big it is. And are there different laws for factories in export zones? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the point of an export processing zone is that for all intents and purposes, the industrial laws of the land are suspended. However, unions are still legal in those areas. So the same rule applies, minimum of 10 people to get registered, no rules about how many unions can be registered in any given place. Bekasi, Jakarta, they're very, very industrialised areas. When I met with activists in Jogja, they said something to me that sounded extraordinarily peculiar and I don't believe them. But they basically said there aren't advanced layers of workers in Jogjakarta. So they organise amongst students. I think that's a distortion of political theory myself because, you know, I said to them, well, how, how is it? I mean, what they actually said was there, there just aren't that many workers in Jogjakarta. And I said, but I'm, I'm in a hotel and someone brings me room service. That person's a worker. When I check out, that person's a worker. So there are workers in Jogjakarta. There are a lot of temples in Jogjakarta, which means it's the tourism industry is very, very big. But, you know, in comparison to Pakistan, for instance, the hospitality and tourism industry workers are very active and very political. What I've been told, and because I can only travel with comrades, I can't just go off and do my own thing. 
I didn't see any industrialisation in Jogja other than the tourism and hospitality industry. And then I spent some time with student activists. But I think that there is likely much, much more to discover in Jogja if I'd managed to connect with unions there. The ability to strike, is that part of Indonesia? Indonesia doesn't have a right to strike. In the same way, quite frankly, neither does Australia. That doesn't stop people from striking. It's really important to look at the last five years of industrial developments in Indonesia, I think, because it's um, quite an interesting story. In 2012, there was a general strike that was called that resulted in two million workers going on strike. That's big. I mean, I don't think we can even imagine what two million workers going on strike is like. They had another general strike in 2013 and another one in 2015. They've been declining in numbers. So one of the questions I had when I went over was, what's happened? What happened since 2012? And what happened? What did they achieve with those general strikes? These strikes originated in the export processing zones. I mean, it's part of the thing when you put 5,000 factories next to each other, workers are going to find a way to meet each other. So actually, they told me that the precursor to the 2012 strike started in 2010. You know, it's not like workers wake up one day and suddenly they go on strike. So what had been happening, and this was in an export processing zone kind of to the southwest of Bekasi. It's still about three hours' drive from Jakarta. So the one in Bekasi, that's very industrial. It's got vehicles manufacturing, plastics manufacturing, components and electronics manufacturing. The the one to the southeast of Bekasi, that one is predominantly garment industries in that export processing zone. And there was a dispute over predominantly wages. So it started as a wages dispute. Workers just got angry spontaneously and, and commenced a dispute with the boss. Now, they were primarily organised by a yellow union. And this is something that really only one person in Indonesia spoke to me about, and I was very impressed with the conversation. And what she said was, yes, the leadership is yellow, but the workers aren't, and the workers are real, and they're angry, and they're organizing and they're being organized so this was a yellow these workers were in a yellow union but it was a spontaneous grassroots emergence of this issue that they started to take to the boss and then the the bosses really clamped down on them and in this particular case it it didn't dull their spirits it actually gave them a bit more momentum And then the demands expanded to include conditions because the conditions in the garment factory were really atrocious. And then those workers started to connect with other garment factories. And it culminated in 2010 in this situation where the workers encircled their factory. And then there were these, not as structured as a roster, but at every shift change, the workers coming off the shifts in other factories in the export processing zone would join the rally. There would be thousands of workers at a time rallying around this particular factory. And that ended with a win. But what that left in 2010 was this capacity to organise and some confidence amongst the workers. And then the the demands expanded. So in 2012, the demand really was wages 
and conditions. And one of the, and this is something workers tell me everywhere in Asia that I go, that the single biggest demand is around contractual labor. So that's called a bunch of different things. We call it casualization. In Korea, they call it irregular work, etc. But basically what we're talking about is precarious work, casualization, contractualization. So those are the things that their demands were around. In the lead up to the 2012 general strike, because it, it really started with these workers, some, some left activists did intervene and really provided some direction and, and some support for it, which is probably, I mean, that's where the call for the general strike came from. The day before, like literally the day before, the Yellow Union called off the general strike. However, I mean, a day's notice, not a great deal of notice. So the strike went ahead and, as I said, it was 2 million people. But it was very heavily, heavily repressed. In fact, people got beaten. There was water cannon. There was tear gas. And what people described to me is actually that the workers were traumatised. People were actually traumatised as a result of the um, smashing of that strike. They attempted another one in 2013. These are why the numbers are going down is what people are saying to me. And that, that's their analysis of the movement. Additionally, though, people are saying that, yes, the numbers are going down, but you can't just count that. You also need to see that despite the declining numbers, more and more unions are getting involved, which means at the same time that it's just not linear, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So there are fewer people, but the movement's expanding. More and more industries are coming into this kind of industrial organising. And there is now a lot of grassroots pressure on the yellow leadership. We have found that traditionally the left, the left-wing elements of the movement in Indonesia, are very fragmented and they split over very minor political differences, not even issues of fundamental political issues, rather strategies and tactics, which is, you can't judge. Like, I'm not in Indonesia, so I'm not going to judge. But, but now I'm hearing activists say, we have to go through the yellow leadership to get to the genuine workers, which is what where we want to be organising. So this year, I, I was in Indonesia for May Day. It was really significant. And this is why I think there's still more work to do in Jogjakarta, because the yellow unions in Jogjakarta called a May Day rally, which they've never done before. Now, there's this ridiculousness, which is the Minister for Labor has also organised a May Day rally, and we know that's going to be, you know, like the government calling something on International Women's Day. But the Yellow Unions organised a rally and they'd never done that in Jogjakarta. And I think that demonstrates there's some movement there. In Jakarta, which is where I was for May Day, there were in excess of 500,000 workers on the street for May Day. You know, and this is in a country that's got hardly any political space where they're coming out of this traumatic smashing of a general strike and serious repression from 2012 onwards. And they still got those number of people on the streets. You look at Australia and we, we you know, in Melbourne, which is supposedly the left-wing heartland of the union movement, and we got 500, if that, on the street for May Day. I don't know, I'm just going by photos because obviously I was in Jakarta. It's not linear. I think that global economic crisis is resulting in interesting things. So the repression is more, the anger is more, the fight is more intense. And there is movement in the yellow unions. I think that at times like this, 
there can't be anything else. One of the sections of society that was instrumental in the downfall of Suharto were the students, particularly university students. What's happening in that area? Yeah, so there's there is still small left-wing parties that organise on campuses and that, that have a political orientation to organising students. I spent time with them when I was in Jogja. But the repression against them is also very great. So I don't mean to undermine the efforts of students, and I know sometimes I can come across like that, but they're very, very brave and they're operating in an environment of repression that I couldn't even imagine. I want to tell you two stories about my contact and my spending time with the students in Jogja. There's a People's Tribunal on the 1965 massacre and they're due to um, deliver their verdict in September. But in the meantime, they've been releasing reports here and there. And when I was in Jogja, a few days earlier, there was this newspaper clipping about these mass graves that were discovered in Sumatra from 1965. There's also a, a film has recently been released about 1965, and it's called Buru Island. Buru Island is one of the places that the communists were sent. There was a public meeting the day before I got to the campus and there was the film screening on the day that I was on campus. Both of these meetings were about discussing 1965. It's a very, very sensitive issue and the government still wants to be pretend like it didn't exist. The public meeting the day before was attempted to be closed down by paramilitary forces. So the students put up a massive fight and they won and the public meeting went ahead. The next day on campus they were screening Buru Island and again paramilitary forces entered the campus, entered the screening room and by the time the schedule, the, the, the movie was about to start, people were starting to filter in and we had to go up three flights of stairs to get to the room. And people were stopped by campus security on the first floor. So we couldn't go any further than that. And basically, weapons-wielding paramilitary forces were negotiating with these first- and second-year law students to close down the movie. And to their credit, those people just stood there and debated the politics of why to screen the film. I I laugh because I think when someone's holding a gun, words are, you know, I think discussion is not, really what's needed in that situation but they stood there and they argued their point. Now it was a a massive compromise position which is that the only people that were allowed in were law students so that was the faculty that it was being screened in and of that university. So basically meant a whole bunch of people weren't allowed to go. Many people analysed the situation as a retreat and a step back particularly from the day before. I don't have a strong view. I don't know what I would do if I had a gun in my face and I'm trying to negotiate screening a film. But those things happen. I mean, this is the pressure that students are under. There's just one more, which is on my first day in Jogja, I was invited to a West Papuan cultural event. And this is largely by uh, West Papuan students. So there's this um, facility that has about 30 or 40 rooms and the entire 
tenants in, in that place were West Papuans, right? So that's where they had the event because there's this big courtyard and basically all the students from that dorm or whatever you want to call it and neighbouring places ended up there for this cultural event. That morning, the military, the, the TNI, like the actual military, not paramilitary forces, went through that entire area and spoke to the leadership and basically, again, gun-toting and not charging anybody with anything, but the, the application of pressure of what's the event about, are you trying to overthrow the Indonesian government, that kind of thing. Now, the event obviously went ahead that night, but this is what activists are actually dealing with day to day. Where are the paramilitaries coming from? What I'm told is that they are that they're fascist, that they are organised by the government, or at least very much supported by the government. They are far right wing Islamic extremists who oppose any form of liberalism or anything like that. But fascist in that their job is to smash the left. But no matter what the government, the military, or the paramilitary do. They can't silence the opposition to the fact that 1960-65 onwards has never been addressed. Well, they can't deny that 1965... they're not addressing it. They're not addressing it. But also, I actually think they can silence. I mean, I think one of the mistakes that we make on the left is say, oh, you will never silence us. Well, I think they're very important demands. But I think history shows that some attempts to stifle dissent are very, very, very successful. Thailand, for instance, like we work a lot. We've worked a lot with Thailand. There are activists outside of Thailand that are working around it. And recently, in my travels across Asia, I've asked people what's happening in Thailand and everyone has said the left is smashed. There's nothing left. You can't do anything inside of Thailand. I think if we keep deluding ourselves that no matter how bad the repression, we'll always have some space, we will lose if we maintain that. I think there are levels of repression that can wipe us out and that's what we're facing. That is what the current fight's about. I think if we don't fight, we will lose. And to hear more about what's happening in the Asia-Pacific area, tune in to Australia Asia Workerlinks program on Saturday morning at between 9 and 9.30 and hear more about Chazelle and the other members of the team. Now the final segment I'll be playing of the extremely successful one-day symposium held in Melbourne in April entitled In the Eye of the Storm, Palestine and the New Media. The MC for the day was Brian Dore, and here he introduces the second international speaker, Ramsey Baroud, who due to pneumonia was unable to travel to attend the symposium, but recorded his speech to be played at the meeting. To give you some background, Ramsey is a Palestinian-American journalist. He's an author, syndicated columnist who's been writing about the Middle East and the Palestinian question in particular for over 20 years. His articles have been published in hundreds of newspapers and journals worldwide and he's been a guest on various television and radio programs. He's also a guest speaker at the House of Commons in London. Hello everyone. My name is Ramzi Baroud. I'm a Palestinian author and a journalist. I was born and raised in the Gaza Strip. I was born in a refugee camp called Nusayrat. It is the largest in size in the Gaza Strip and the second largest in population after the refugee camp of Jabalia. 
the people of Nusayrat come from villages that were depopulated in 1948 after the an onslaught of war and ethnic cleansing of Palestine uh, 68 years ago. Most of the villagers who lived in southern Palestine were either pushed out or managed to escape to Gaza. That's where most of the Gaza refugees come from. In 1948, there was about 200,000 refugees who ended up in the Gaza Strip. Right now, Gaza is about 1.8 million people. The vast majority of them are refugees and descendants of these refugees. Of course, you have refugee camps in the West Bank and in Lebanon, in Syria, throughout the Middle East. Their story is kind of a story that we all Palestinians have in common. We Palestinians are united by many um, aspects of our life, by culture, by history, by blood, by so many other aspects. But we are also united by our original story, by our, uh, what we call in Arabic, our waja, our agony, our pain of what happened to us in 1948. Palestine was ethnically cleansed, and a whole different nation came from Europe and other parts of the world and took over our homeland. And for 68 years, the Middle East did not really see any real stability because of this original sin that has never been dealt with, uh, not in any just manner, at least. It has been this kind of festering wound that has not only invited instability and conflict and war in the land of Palestine, but also throughout the Middle East. I doubt that there is any conflict in the Middle East that somehow is not linked to Palestine in one way or the other. And of course, Israeli fingers and, and in, is, is involved in, in most or are involved in most of these conflicts. Uh, Israel invaded not just Palestine and ethnically cleansed its people, but also invaded Lebanon, invaded Egypt, occupied the Sinai, invaded Syria, occupied the Golans, invaded Jordan, and, and so forth. It's a country that has been created by war and ethnic cleansing and blood, and since then it has avowed to become this warring nation. It convinced itself that it's just basically is incapable of living in peace with its neighbors. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu repeated this false analogy just recently, really, in, November, in, in February, rather, where he described Israel as a villa in the jungle. Ehud Barak has used that term. Others have used that term. They are a villa in the jungle. Israel is this paradise that, you know, just they have to build fences and walls and they have to surround themselves because of the wild beasts. You know, Israeli terminology is rather extremely, extremely demeaning of their neighbors. Palestinians are cockroaches, they are beasts, they are... And this goes back all the way to the founding of Israel. It's not new terminology. It's not linked to, you know, suicide bombing. It's not linked to rockets from Gaza. It's not linked to any of that. Their perception that they brought with them from Europe is really rather fascist and racist from the very, very get-go. It's the same racist and fascist mentality that basically influenced the narrative of 
previous Israeli leaders, Golda Meir, for example, when she denied that Palestinians existed. Not that we came and we took someone else's country, she said. Palestinians did not exist. This assumption, you know, Palestinians do not exist, has been repeated and was repeated recently, actually, in American primary uh, election debates. And it's not that they don't recognize that, that we exist as people, that Ramzi Baroud is not who he says he is. They just don't see us worthy of being people, of being a nation, that we are invented, as, as it's being said sometimes, that we are this fabricated nation of people who are Bedouins, nomads, and so forth. That helped in the dehumanization process. When you don't see your enemy as an equal being, killing your enemy corralling your enemy, imprisoning your enemy, torturing your enemy, pulverizing your enemy, it's not an issue. There are no moral accountability to doing so because your enemy is not a human, is not, is not a being, is not a nation, does not have identity. This is why it's so essential for them to utilize this kind of demeaning terminology. They're not just being mean, they are being calculating with this kind of language. Palestinians, on the other hand, have been fighting back. We have been fighting back for so many years, and we will continue to fight back, partly because we actually have no other option but to fight back. But the other reason is that Palestinians are quite tough. They know who they are. They are very aware of their, their responsibility, not just towards Palestine, but towards the world at large. We are caught in this situation where we are the last defenders against Zionism. We want the world to join us in this fight. We want our cause to become universal, and we are working very, very hard to achieving that. Until that happens, we are the vanguards against Zionism, and we fought them in every possible way. We fought them in our stones in 1987 Intifada. We fought them with our poetry and art and graffiti on the walls. We fought them with our hunger strikes in prisons. We fought them with our stubbornness and our determination never under any circumstance to be defeated in our dictionary, in our culture. The word defeat doesn't exist in a practical way. The fact that I surrender, I am defeated, it just doesn't exist. And this is the kind of mentality that Israel is having such a heck of a time with. Because you can defeat an army if you have a superior air force. You can, defeat, you can defeat a bunch of gunmen if you have stronger firepower. But you can't defeat a people. If they are determined and they have decidedly and collectively agreed that we are not going to give in under any circumstance, you simply cannot defeat them. So what Israel is trying to do, or has been trying to do for a long time, is corralling them, imprisoning them, putting them in bantu stands, imprisoning them, humiliating them, killing them, driving them out, doing everything in their power to criminalize and to defeat the Palestinian people as a people. It's, it's not our leaders that, who are keeping us together. Our leaders, uh, look what happened in you know, our, our leaders in Ramallah and elsewhere. They've, they've already sold out. They are not the reason of why we are fighting. This is not an elitist struggle for anything. This is about people who are standing their ground. Refugees, peasants, middle class workers, moms, dads, who are in every possible way and every aspect of their life are actually fighting back. And we need you. We need you to, to be part of this, of this fight.
We don't need you to come and, and engage the Israelis militarily, but we need you to take part in, in your role and your responsibility as a human being, as, an, as a citizen of this world, as someone who would like to see freedom and justice prevails in the Middle East. And it's no longer about Palestine and the Palestinians alone. And it's not even about the Middle East as a whole. It's about the world because Palestine has been this festering wound and that wound is now reaching other parts of the Middle East and now is reaching other parts of the world. And it's in Europe and it's in Africa and it's elsewhere. And we keep saying Palestine is the issue. As John Paul Jarwin said, Palestine is the issue and Palestine will always remain the issue. So no matter what we do to distract ourselves from that truism, that reality, that if you can't find a solution to what's happening in, in Palestine, you can't possibly stabilize the Middle East. And when I say find a solution, I don't mean some sort of a, a concoction like the Oslo nonsense that took place and wasted 20 years of blood and tears and land and fight and conflict. And we knew from the very beginning that it was not going to bring anything good for Palestinians. Palestinians are only demanding a just peace. We want justice. We don't want peace process per, per the terminology and the predictions of Henry Kissinger. We want justice. We want our people to receive their rights, their freedom, their dignity. And we are willing, we want to fight. We've been fighting for it. And most of our fight has actually been rather a nonviolent fight, if anybody is paying attention. Our strikes, our protests, our civil disobedience, it's been going back not just to 1948, it's been going back to 1936 and the Palestinian strike of 1936 and prior to that. We want you to be involved with, with us in this fight. We want you to understand that your role now is rather important. It's not about solidarity for its sake. It's about the fact that this is not a fight that could be fought only by the Palestinians because we're not fighting against Israel only. We are fighting against Israel's benefactors. We're talking about Western governments, powerful governments, powerful armies against the United States that has been a strong supporter of Israel since Israel was founded in 1948. We as Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and elsewhere, we can't do this without you. So we need you to get involved. We need you to be morally divesting from Israel. And by morally divesting, I'm not talking about hummus. I'm not talking about Israeli products per se. I am talking about a, a pledge, a vow that you must make that you are going to stand on the right side of history. Whatever that takes, what, whatever that means. You need to make a decision that you are standing with the Palestinian people in this just fight for freedom. Not with Israel, not with the Israeli army. And you can't be a silent witness either. Because neutrality is not possible under these circumstances. And because we also understand that, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, as Martin Luther King once said. And what is happening in the Middle East is a proof to that theory that the injustice that started in Palestine and continued to fester and to grow has now reached other parts of the Middle East and we need this to stop. And we want it to stop in the most peaceful means possible. But we need numbers. We need people to stand with us, millions and millions of them, and to shout from the rooftops of every capital, of every city, of every village, of every country, the same way that we stood united against the apartheid government of South Africa. We need to do the same thing in Palestine. 
And it is possible because no amount of firepower, no uh, uh, air force, no Merkava tanks is strong enough, is powerful enough, is large enough to silence the voices of civil societies all around the world. We need you and we need you now more than ever because our movement, our boycott movement is finally reaching the point where we could start talking soon enough about a critical mass. We need that critical mass so every voice matters. And we very much appreciate all of your solidarity and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. And I really hope that I could see you and talk to you in person. And as I said, apologize to you in person as well for not being able to join you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support. And that message from author and journalist, Palestinian author and journalist Ramsey Baroud, who took part in the symposium, the Palestinian symposium, via a video because um, he had been sick. He was recovering, but he couldn't travel in the plane because um, his lungs hadn't quite healed. So, absolutely wonderful, though. The 3CR annual Radiothon is almost here and we're celebrating 40 years of Radical Radio. Between June 6th and 19th, we're asking you to help us stay on air for another 40 years. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, just call 03 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come. Last week, veteran activist and currently the chairperson of the Party of the Labouring Masses in the Philippines, Sonia Malinkio, spoke about the former president turned dictator Ferdinand Marcos and the events leading up to his eventual downfall. Today, post-1986 to the present day, and a new president, Rodrigo Duterte, also sometimes known as Dirty Harry. It's been called an unfinished revolution. Why? Well, it was basically, people were asking, like uh, just recently there was an article, what is wrong with the people's power? Because we had people's power in 1986 after 30 years the situation almost remained the same. Uh, there was some semblance of democracy. There was democratic space. But the economy, the politics, the rule was almost the same. It was benefiting only a few uh, powerful families. And the whole of people suffer in hunger and uh, all the problems uh, basically just uh, became worse, so much so that some of the people began to think that perhaps uh, we should not have done people's power. Perhaps people's power was wrong, and we should have just continued with the Marcoses. That also explains why the Marcoses were able to make a comeback. They were able to revive their fortunes, uh, set up their uh, political rule again in the Ilocos, in the northern province of the Philippines, and uh, in this uh, uh, recent election, Bong Bong Marcos ran as vice president. And my reply to that is basically it was not people's power that was wrong. What happened was that people's power was hijacked by the elite who then uh, set up their own rule, who then restored 
the elite democracy uh, that we had before the Marcoses and just passed on the power to uh, an old set of uh, elite as compared to the Marcos uh, elite rule. So it was the same. The economic uh, policies were the same. It was neoliberalism. It was in service of the foreign corporations. Uh, it was supportive of the uh, U.S. government and foreign governments. It was not really working for the people. So in a sense, people power, there was nothing to replace Marcos. People power helped to get rid of him, but you didn't have anything in place yes, that's to right. replace him. Yeah. What happened was that there was people's power, and when uh, Cory Aquino took over, she sent them away. She said, people's power is over. You can now go home and let us do our work in peace. Why did people accept that? Well, they had no experience of the Cory Aquino rule. She was seen as, you know, just a simple woman who might be able to uh, restore democracy for the people. People were jubilant when she came to power because they thought things would change. We were also jubilant, the left because that was a new situation for us. There was now a democratic space where we can critique the government and uh, do our own things. But it turned out, after a while, Cory Aquino instigated war against the left and war against the uh, total war policy. Do you believe if her late husband had been the one who survived, that it would Mm. have been different if he did one? Well, some were saying that... uh, the husband uh, could have been different because uh, Benigno Aquino was saying something more like if he became the president, then he would distribute wealth in favor of the people. When he was, and during the uh, time of Marcos, I think uh, there was some reports that Benigno Aquino, although he was in jail, the family of Benigno Aquino distributed their land to the farmers. Actually, I heard that from the farmers themselves because I was in the guerrilla army at the time, and we were undertaking this kind of reforms in the countryside. But there were reports that the land owned by the Aquinos were already distributed to the farmers uh, in support of the farmers. But the Kowanko didn't distribute their lands. Kore uh, Aquino belonged to the Kowanko side of the family, who up to now controlled many lands, Hacienda Luisita. So that's why people were saying things could have been a bit different. But uh, you see, we're talking of the class struggle here uh, and class interests. So as long as uh, the landed elite still have their properties to protect, I think later on their, their policies would be more and more against the people, against the farmers. So in the case of Cory Aquino, the signal was the massacre of the farmers who demonstrated uh, near the Malacanang Palace sometime after 1986. That was the first signal that uh, the government would be almost like the same. 12 to 13 farmers were massacred on this street. It was also the case with uh, the son who became the president in 2010, Noy Noy Aquino. There was a massacre at the Hacienda Luisita. So the way they treated farmers showed the character of this elite, uh, how they would really harm the interests of the people if, if they think that uh, their properties are threatened. And the other president or presidents in that period too, they just continue that as well? Ah, yes. Uh, after uh, Cory Aquino, uh, it was uh, Fidel Ramos who led uh, one of the leaders of the military rebellion. 
Fidel Ramos also instituted the same neoliberal policies, privatization, deregulation, liberalization of the economy in support of the big U.S. corporations, and he was also corrupt. And then he was replaced by, through election, by Arab Strada, the movie actor. Arab Strada was a sort of, he was the mayor of San Juan before San Juan City. He was seen as an outsider from the ranks of the old oligarchy, the old elite. So I think it was also one of the reasons why he was deposed early on. He didn't uh, finish his term, but he was also corrupt. And aside from being corrupt, he was like a gang lord. (laughs) Uh, The way he operated uh, the presidency was basically like he operated a gang of uh, of, uh, uh, cronies and thieves. He was also deposed, also through a people's power, but this time also supported by the old elite who didn't want an outsider to remain the president because he was encroaching so much on their prerogatives and wealth. And so he didn't finish his term, and so it was finished for him by the vice president, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, who uh, afterwards, uh, after finishing Arab's term, uh, cheated in the election and became the president for another six years. So I think uh, uh, Gloria Macapagal was... Uh, the longest-running president in, in terms of uh, uh, years of service. It was 10 years. And Estrada went to jail? Estrada went to jail. And then also Gloria Macapagal Arroyo went to jail when Noynoy Aquino in 2010 became the president because of plunder, corruption, and all these kind of issues. Estrada was uh, pardoned by Gloria Macapagal Arroyo. and uh, But Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, it's not really in jail, she's in the hospital. So we have this uh, situation where presidents who were uh, deposed or who were charged soon became bound to a wheelchair to show that they're sick and had to be brought to the hospital to be kept in the hospital instead of in jail. So right now, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo is enjoying uh, her days in the hospital in Quezon City. Uh, she won again the congresswoman position in her hometown in Pampanga. And she's going to do that from a wheelchair in the... So even though she cannot serve the term because she's, uh, she's bound to, you know, she's in the hospital, she's still the congresswoman. Now we have a new president who was a mayor as well in the Mindanao. Yes. Digong, as she was uh, popularly uh, uh, called, she's uh, Rodi Duterte, mayor of uh, Davao City, uh, one of the largest cities in the south, uh, south of the Philippines. Headed that city for quite a long time. He was actually a product of the 1986 revolution. He became an OIC, I think a vice mayor OIC, officer in charge in Davao City. Then he became the mayor. He finished three terms as a mayor, became the vice mayor. The mayor was uh, at the time uh, his daughter. And then he decided to run for presidency in this uh, 2016 election. A very violent place, the whole of that island, many years of war. Yes, uh, it's part of Mindanao. Mm. So basically, there's, uh, also the war is uh, it's almost encircled by the, by the areas uh, that were uh, at war in uh, uh, Cotabato and the ARMM areas, uh, as it's called, uh, the Autonomous Region of Muslim uh, Mindanao. So there were also sporadic, uh, sometimes uh, bombings would happen in Davao. 
as an aftermath of the war uh, in Mindanao. So that's why during his campaign, Duterte, Mayor Duterte, was also always talking about the threat of the war engulfing the whole Philippines. And uh, everyone knows that. That has been the possibility because there were also bombings, sporadic bombings, uh, that happened in Metro Manila connected with the war in Mindanao. It's a threat that uh, could not be ignored. And I think he, he, he won the trust of the people, uh, especially in the South, on that campaign because he also showed himself as the only president, as the only person who could stop the war because he was friend with the MILF, the um, Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and the MNLF forces because he had been talking with them for quite a long time, being in that region for quite a long time. And he was also a friend of the New People's Army uh, in the South. He showed himself or he projected himself as the only person who could end the war in Mindanao and in the Philippines. When he campaigned for the president, he had a long relationship with the uh, Moro people. Uh, He supported the MNLF and the MILF, and he knew their leaders. He was talking to them. And he was also a friend of the indigenous, the tribes, uh, tribal people in the area. He introduced a system where some of the tribal leaders were put in the local government. And then he was also a long-term ally of the New People's Army. The New People's Army existed, was able to exist in Davao also because of him. Because you see, the New People's Army, in order to exist in the countryside, they had to form alliances with the local politicians or local trappers. So it's not only in Davao, it's also in Isabela, for instance, the the D, the clan of the D, D's in Isabela, or in uh, the Escalantes, in Escalante Negros, where they also had a long-running relationship with the mayor there. That's not the picture that we've been given of him, I think. We're given, we're, the picture we've got is a, a violent man, a man who's responsible for thousands of deaths, <coughs> extrajudicial that, yeah. killings. That's also one side of him. Because you see, Duterte is a warlord. He is like a king in his kingdom. His character is like that. He's the head of it all. So he does whatever he wants. Except that so there's been killings of uh, petty drug syndicates uh, that uh, happen in the area. I, I didn't think she went after the big ones. Uh, she went against the drug pushers, uh, even children peddling drugs. She was uh, a killer, the punisher, called the punisher in that sense. But she didn't run against the left. There's a big difference, though, between being the mayor of Davao City and the president of the whole of the Philippines. Yes, that's right. Like uh, in Davao City, you're you're a mayor, you can do whatever you want uh, in your hometown. But if you uh, become the president, then you have to deal with several forces that uh, that will surround you. There will be the military, and the military, everyone knows, is the one controlling the drug syndicate, the prostitution syndicate, and all the other gambling syndicates in the Philippines. So if you really want to... uh, to uh, uh, abolish uh, the, the, the syndicates, then you have to go against the military. He might do that. He might do that because, uh, you know, he's used to being the one in charge. As yes. a warlord, this is the one in charge. So that is also quite dangerous because you never know what he is going to do. And he has to have a lot of backing behind him to do something like that. 
in uh, yes in uh, in Davao he has in, right now uh, as 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 uh, during the election because he won uh, the support overwhelmingly of all the classes class A B C D and E uh, that means he has also quite a big support in the business uh, sector uh, and uh, in the uh, you know elite he was actually backed up by the local elite because you see, they could, we could say that there's a division between the elites in the Philippines. There's, there's the oligarchy, the old oligarchy, uh, who's been in control for uh, a long time. And uh, they're, they're basically based in Luzon or in Metro Manila. So that's why their term is called, or their rule is called Imperial Manila, the rule of the Imperial Manila. And these are resisted by the local elites. The mayors or the you know the local clans, political clans in the south, in Cebu, uh, in the provinces outside Luzon and Metro Manila, and that's why Duterte symbolized that, and Duterte was supported by these uh, local elites, and one of the issues that they raised together was the issue of, uh, of developing a federal system in the Philippines, which means that they would be its one would be autonomous from Imperial Manila and would receive their just budget, you know, their, their, uh, uh, what they need, instead of being taken uh, over by Manila, by the Manila oligarchy. And he wants to change the constitution, is that correct? He wants to change the constitution because of that. that yes. uh, but uh, uh, another thing about him is that he has a coalition, so coalition supporting him from the extreme right to the extreme left. And uh, so the middle classes also support him based on, this, uh, based on the surveys uh, and in the votes that he got. But the uh, extre- uh, extreme right means you have the elite and then you have, uh, you have uh, uh, the Marcoses also supported him because Bongbong Marcos tried to be his vice president. Although officially, the vice president of uh, Duterte was uh, Cayetano, uh, and uh, but uh, the forces of uh, Bongbong Marcos talked to Duterte for Duterte to be, to team up with uh, with uh, Bongbong Marcos. Bongbong Marcos lost or he's losing uh, right now, and uh, but basically uh, uh, he he supported Duterte and his agenda is basically the revival of the Marcoses and the uh, and the type of rule that the Marcos uh, Marcos uh, did uh, in the country. So that constitutes the extreme uh, right uh, uh, formation that supports the 30. Then you have the guerrilla forces. Then you have the MILF. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of uh, forces supporting him, so much so that in one of the articles that I did about the 30, I sort of compared him to Peron uh, because he was quite a populist too. He was very, he, he talked, uh, you know, like, like a popular. Uh, uh, Godfather, that's his image, and uh, so uh, it, it was like Peron, Peron because Peron, uh, when he ruled Argentina, he had the support of both the right and the left, and then uh, later on that was uh, that, that that could be uh, happen, but at the end of his rule, he moved against the left. He had them arrested, and uh, he had them uh, he had them tortured. And he set up his own dictatorship. We fear that that would happen here, uh, given the forces that surround him. So there's a possibility that would he would turn against the left too. What about the military? 
the military is also one of the rightist forces that support him. And of course, the military would not want. Right now, there's been talk of planning a coup d'etat uh, against, uh, against uh, Duterte because Duterte has been offering some seats to the uh, Communist Party, to the left. Finally, Sonny, where was the left in 2016? Uh, well, uh, there, there were two sections of it. Uh, even the uh, CPP left, the Communist Party of the Philippines left with their uh, mass movements and mass organizations. Uh, they supported two, uh, two uh, president candidates, the uh, Makabayan Bloc with the Bayan Muna uh, and all the other mass organizations supported Grace Poe. And uh, the Jose Maria Sison uh, and the underground left the Communist Party of the Philippines, uh, in a way supported Duterte because there was a talk with Duterte even before the campaign where Jose Maria Sison sort of, Joma Sison sort of uh, uh, endorsed him uh, to become the new president. Then the other uh, left groups, the so-called rejectionists before, uh, supported, uh, uh, well, we, we supported candidates in the Senate, uh, like we ran seven senators. One was Walden Bellio. And then <coughs> we have the, uh, one of the military rebels, uh, uh, an ex-general, uh, Diosdado Valeroso, who ran also a senator. Then we uh, allied with Nere Colmenares, who's with the uh, Macabayan bloc. <coughs> Excuse me. Plus some other senators uh, who's uh, supporting uh, women's rights, uh, overseas Filipino workers' uh, rights, and the anti-corruption uh, candidates like uh, Lorna Capunan, uh, FFW labor leader Alan Montano, uh, Toots Ople, who's an OFW uh, advocate. Uh, and so there were seven of them. Uh, but all of them lost. But when we, uh, when we supported them as candidates, it was also with the idea that we were building a movement, a movement of leaders and members who can take on the election next time around. So it's not only this election, but also preparing our forces. Uh, but uh, we do have some... Uh, some uh, uh, some victories at the local level because we also run PLM, my own organization, Partido Lakasang Masa, Party of the Laboring Masses, is a registered national political party. So we can run candidates from president down to the local. But we run uh, local candidates and uh, we won uh, two mayors, uh, one vice mayor, and three councillors. That's as much that we can get because this uh, election is re really heavily stacked up against us. But we're building a base. And uh, there will be an election in October at the village level, barangay level, and we're also running our candidates there. And perhaps we'll have better chances because there are 42,000 barangays all over uh, the Philippines and uh, there is still some space there that is not, uh, that is not uh, controlled by the elite or by the trappos. So is what you're saying is that nothing much is going to change for the people? <clears throat> and can I ask you about the US pivot into Asia and the place of the Philippines there? Uh, 
Well, uh, there's been series after series of uh, of uh, agreements uh, that were made uh, after the closure of the U.S. bases in the Philippines just to continue the uh, U.S. military presence in the Philippines. And one of, of, of that was the Visiting Forces Agreement, which allowed them to visit uh, uh, the Philippines and uh, do some uh, uh, activities there. Now there's the EDCA, Enhanced uh, Defense Cooperation Agreement, uh, something, which allowed them to hold a base inside the Philippine bases, so-called, so a base within the Philippine base. So that uh, allows them to have more uh, permanent presence uh, in the Philippines. And of course, there's talk of the uh, pivot to Asia, so they're increasing their presence more, and they're using the threat of China uh, the, uh, our claim to the Spratlys, uh, to the West Philippine Sea, the China uh, 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 Sea, the islands there, uh, as a way to increase their presence in the country. Now, uh, they have some problem there because the new president, uh, Duterte, the incoming president, uh, is uh, basically uh, is not as much beholden to the U.S. interest as Noi Noi Aquino or as the Aquinos. So uh, he has made it very clear that he wants to have a bilateral talk with China uh, rather than uh, just to depend on the U.S. military presence to pressure China. So that is a different policy uh, that he's putting in place. So that's also one of the reasons why the U.S. might try something to destabilize the rule. So there's also that one possibility. So there's a lot of forces that will try to destabilize Duterte's rule, aside from Duterte himself, who might also do some crazy thing because he's, he's quite, uh, he's quite uh, he can do that because he did that during his campaign, those crazy pronouncements that he made. Because, he's, you see, he has the character of a warlord, a king in his own kingdom, so he can do whatever he wants. But that is, uh, you know, that is the thinking of a warlord in a specific uh, town that he controlled. Now he is the president of the Philippines, and would, it would be a different ball game. But all the same, it might be, we don't know. We're just talking about where will it be heading I think no one knows right now, so we'll just see <laughs> what what is in store for us uh, in the coming in the coming months. But you're not expecting any great improvement in the the plight of the people of the Philippines, the lives of the people in the Philippines. We're not uh, like well, uh, the CPP uh, has been offered by Duterte to fill up four cabinet posts uh, in his government. And that involves the Department of Labor, the Department of Agrarian Reform, the Department of Social uh, Welfare, and the Department of Energy and Natural Resources. These are quite big departments. But even if the CPP accepts that, the Communist Party accepts that, and put their people there, they cannot do so much because the government, Congress, and Senate are still with the trapos. So they're, they're, they're... it will just, they might be able to expose the problem with the whole system. But beyond that, I think it will be a, 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 a very, very difficult to, to, uh, to turn the tide uh, uh, to, to, uh, against what, what has been there. 
for a long time. Uh, but then we expect that, of course, with people of the left in place, there will also be some uh, uh, some activities, actions that will happen. So, so that's part of the possibilities. But the right now, the possibilities, because of the cabinet uh, members uh, who have been announced by Duterte, most of them, especially those holding the economic posts, would just continue the new liberal policies of the former regime. That is a big problem. And that was Sonny Melenchio, who was an activist, veteran activist, left activist in the Philippines, talking today about post-Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines after the People's Power Revolution in 1986. That's all for me for today. I'll be back. Tuesday, next Tuesday, the week before the Radiothon. So that's bye for now.